In these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. Awake my soul, awake my soul, for you were made to meet your maker. It's a lovely song written and performed by Mumford and Sons in their 2010 album, Sigh No More. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. It's a great line, and it's a biblical truth. What or who should I love most, and why? That's been one of the great human questions down through the ages. If you look inside your bulletin, you'll find the text for the sermon this morning. We're taking a break from our series on 1 Corinthians Life Lessons from an Ancient City. Today we're turning to Jesus' challenge to us in the Sermon on the Mount as we stare in the face the anxiety that some of us have right now about money and our material needs. Some of you are struggling to make ends meet, to pay your rent or the mortgage on your house, to get the medical bills covered. Some of you are facing significant credit card debt, there are car repairs, and you're wondering how you're going to cover it all. If you're a member here and a regular part of this congregation, you should have gotten Nate Mackey's note this past week to the effect that we need as a church to take in $40,000 in June, double what we normally need in this last month of our fiscal year, just to meet our expected expenses, that is to pay our bills and to make good on our commitments to people serving others except if the pastor's wife decides that we don't really need June's salary at all, then of course we would be in a little better shape. That is not likely to happen. Nate reported to you, and this uh, was actually surprising to me, that to this point in May, this fiscal year, we've had the lowest income just in terms of total dollars Um, in 10 years across a decade. Now, part of the reason for that surely is the number of people that we've lost in this past year, but it still puts us in a hard place where anxiety germinates and where it grows. So now everybody's thinking, okay, here it comes, a big sermon about money, um, a pitch to give lots of money in June to shrink the deficit. Actually, the text here in Matthew 6 is not a text, first and foremost, about money. Though money is just around uh, the corner from Jesus' words here. But first and foremost, this is a text about two things. It's about what God values and what we value, what God loves, and what we love, what God makes his priority, and what we make our priority. Well, you say then that's really about six things. Not really. What you value is what you love. And what you love, you will make 
your priority. In actual acts of loyalty, of work, and in the sacrifice of time and of money and of energy. Now, I don't mean that what you say you love will be your priority. But what you actually love is what you are putting first in your life in real time and effort. Hence, that line from Mumford and Sons, where you invest your love, you invest your life. This is a text about Jesus' insistence It's also an assurance, if you will, that God values his people so much that he will do more to take care of them and protect them from ruin than he does for the rest of his creation. And secondly, it's a text about whether or not we will trust this insistence of Jesus that God values us, trust Jesus enough to turn around and then value God above all things, responding to him in love because he values us above all the creatures of the earth. And then out of that love in our hearts, will we allow ourselves to be constrained to make God's priorities our priorities putting his kingdom and the righteous living that is its hallmark first in what we want and then first in our living, in our buying and selling and spending, in the use of our time, in our loving, in our thinking, our child raising, our ambitions, our everything, so that we have something to speak into the false worldview, if you will, of the anxiety that gets us by the throat so often as we worry about our bodies and about our life. A false worldview that tempts us to buy the lie that it is we ourselves that must establish our security in the end because no one else is as committed to it as we are. Now, friends, this is important because what anxiety does, anxiety consumes our priorities, our supreme commitments. It consumes our highest love. These are things which belong to God, the one who made us. And the one who found us lost took us by the hand and in some cases then slowly walked us back home to himself. Here is the text. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you don't have the verses right in front of you, but just before our text, Jesus had said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, that's the first word 
In the next verse, verse 25, that is because what I just said about God and money is true, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value? And the sense, of course, is value to him than they are. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Why are you anxious about whether your body looks as stylishly decked out as the next person? Now, that's not a biblical justification for looking dumpy. But it is a challenge to our preoccupation with clothes. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, you think of the glory of Solomon's clothes, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, lots of therefores in this text, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus insists, friends, that this is true, that God literally values his people so much that it constrains him willingly to... Take care of them. Verse 26, are you not of more value to God than the birds? What does this really mean? That God values us highly. More highly than the birds. And surely by extension we can say more highly than all the animals that he has made, that he values us, we might say, supremely. What does that really mean? Do you you get what Jesus is here challenging us to believe and to trust that God values you? Now I'm kind of tongue-tied by it, actually, because it feels a little dangerous to me. It seems it would be easy to start thinking like Reese Witherspoon's character in that movie, Clueless. Now, I know it's a chick flick, but I really like that movie. You kind of expect that she would say to God, of course I know that you value me. In fact, Lord... I'm sure you 
think yourself really lucky that I like you. But Jesus insists that it's actually true that God literally values his people. Are you not of more value to your Father in heaven than the birds? Those words of Jesus, friends, I submit to you, are the, they are the artichoke heart of this passage. Down underneath all the leaves that you pull away, this is the tender, delectable core that we matter to God, that he values us and loves us. Everything else that Jesus says here in his wonderful insistence, it flows from this truth, that this is really true about God, that he values his people, which means you, if your trust is in him this morning. I would like to encourage you, maybe challenge you to do something, to make a choice this week that for you is an act of trusting that God values you. You might find it harder to do than you think. But to commit an act of trust like that and then, in fact, to lean back on it and to derive some enjoyment from it. That's Jesus' insistence here that God values us. But we can also say this, that It is God's intention. He intends for us to live and to live in the moment and enjoy what we have in it. Instead of being preoccupied, nervously wringing our hands and grinding our teeth over the uncertainty of the future. Listen to it again, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value to him than they are? So much of the good life for which God made us involves enjoyment and rest and laughter And simple delight in people and in good things. So much of it involves enjoying the Lord all in the present moment rather than this anxiety-driven and frantic preoccupation with the future and with things that are less ends in themselves and much more means to higher ends like food and clothes. That's what they are. Now some of us are thinking at this point, well, yeah, but if I just had a little bigger financial cushion, then I think I could relax and live more in the moment. But here's a question for you to ponder. Think about your own experience. Does anxiety about your security actually lessen 
the more money you make. The more money you make, the more you come, come, become anxious about having it stolen. The more money you make, the tendency is the more you spend. And then your anxiety can so easily increase because sometimes you overextend. It's important that we take Jesus' counsel here to look at the birds. They are living in the present moment, as it were. This is not a license for total irresponsibility. That isn't the point. But the point is to look at the way God takes care of his created world. To see that it is really possible that God wills that for us too. That in the midst of saving, which is important, in the midst of making money to live and to get food, all of which is important, we are to cultivate the ability to relax, to enjoy the world, and not to hand ourselves over to this anxiety which is so incredibly destructive to our peace of mind. Jesus is using a kind of logic here, and I submit to you that right at about this point we have to ask ourselves why Jesus' appeal, why the logic of Jesus here in the things that he appeals to don't, we might say, very easily inspire us. There's a formal argument that Jesus is making here. There's a Latin term for it. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing... If God so richly provides for the creatures that he values less, like birds, will he not provide even more richly for those that he values more? Verse 28, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed. Dressed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, that's even lower than the birds, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? One commentator nicely put it this way, God's providence and care are so rich that he dresses the grass with wild flowers that are neither productive nor enduring. But he does that to adorn the grass. Well, what's our instinctive response to this? Mine goes something like this. Well, okay, this is a sweet analogy. What God gives the daylilies in my yard is a richer wardrobe than the clothes that wealthy King Solomon had tailors make for himself, so I can trust that God will provide for me even more richly than that. But this is what I want to say in response. I know a Christian family whose house was turned into toothpicks 
in the great tornado in Joplin some years ago. I know a 12-year-old girl, a Christian, a believer who is dying of cancer. And I could go on and on and you could go on and on with those things. So the question that wells up in my heart, it goes like this. Well, if those awful things are permitted to happen to us by a heavenly father who promises that he will richly provide for his people because he values us above created nature, then I do not see how that lets the air out of the tires of my anxiety at all. Because cancer and car crashes and financial ruin and worse, those things can't be ruled out of my future. And those are exactly the threats to my security I fear. Those are the anxiety feeders in my life. And I submit to you that that leads to this as we reflect on this passage. The claim here that Jesus is making, that God values his people so much that he provides for their bodily needs and assures them of a good life that is not self-evident, When we look at Christians' actual experience, it must be an article of faith. Jesus himself intimates as much, I think. Look at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Why? Because everything is going to go swimmingly. No, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Tomorrow will produce its own reasons for anxiety. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is acknowledging here that to be alive... In the world, after Adam and Eve, is by definition to have trouble. In John 16, you remember Jesus' words, In this world you will have trouble. Somebody just the other day sent me a bunch of funny and clever sayings. One was, the only people without problems are in cemeteries. And that's pretty much true. Followers of Jesus live with trouble daily, just like everyone else. To live with confidence that God does value us enough to provide for us, in fact, requires us to commit acts of trust. Jesus chides And he's not really speaking just directly to his disciples. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He is preaching to the masses. Jesus chides the children of Adam for being predisposed to doubt that God really does value us. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? The Greek word is kind of a funny and strange word here that Jesus uses, that Matthew uses in writing this up. It's the Greek word oligopistoi, it's called. The ESV has O-U of little faith. It's actually a noun. And Jesus is saying, O-U little faiths you. He's chiding us. 
And yet what's to be the basis of our faith and confidence that God values us? Yes, Jesus is insisting here we are to draw reassurances from what we see God doing in nature, the way he cares for created things. But that, and you know this in your life, that can never be enough. The Sermon on the Mount has to be looked at in connection with Christ's success in establishing the kingdom of God by his finished work on the cross and in his empty tomb. When Jesus said, and it was on the eve of his death, when he said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, he meant it. And most of them died by execution. But he added something. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And Jesus did that overcoming of sin and evil in the world. Why did he overcome it? Because the Father sent him. Why did the Father send him? Because the Father values you and me. He truly values his people. Christ, too, valued us. His love constrained him to come, to lay down his life for us, and take it up again. You matter to God. And, of course, that then brings us to Jesus' challenge here. Will we now turn around and value God, love him, and make his priorities our priorities. And so he comes to it in verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Then he says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. The word here really is an intense seeking. Probably would be accurate to translate, for the Gentiles feverishly seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his priorities. That is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You know, after Christ's ascension and after that awful murder of Stephen by stoning, the early church had to learn that in this promise and all these things will be added to you, was a promise not for the short run, but for the long haul. I can't imagine how horrible it would be to be murdered with stones. And yet, it's true for Stephen that God valued him, that he mattered to him far more than birds do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is not the righteousness imputed to us by faith in order to be justified by God and freed from the moral guilt and its penalty that attaches to us. But most commentators think that, in fact, this is the righteous living that is the hallmark of the kingdom the hallmark of Christians who live in a hostile world. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in the way that you live. What does that mean for us, practically speaking? 
What does that mean for us as Old Orchard Church? Sure, I think it means each household ought to take a fresh look at its giving patterns, examine what we are given back to God for love's sake, take a fresh and prayerful look at his priorities, the work of his pushing his kingdom forward in the world. I think it means that for each of us. But I also think it means we need to take a measure of just how much God has already blessed us here. It's true, we're behind financially right now, but God has graciously given us two wonderful buildings, this church and its property and the Milligan House. In so many ways, here in America, friends, as believers, we have it so easy. Two weeks ago, the New York Times carried a story. It was a very prominent story about the province of Zhujiang in eastern China. It's on the eastern coast, the province where the Christian population has been strong and vibrant. And it's a story about how the provincial government there for the last two years has been cracking down on Christians. Some 1,200 to 1,500 crosses have been cut off of church buildings by the government. Some churches have been torn down on the pretext that they were not built according to code. Some churches are in conflict. It told the story, and this was a great sadness to me, of one church that is in deep conflict the young Chinese Christians are boycotting Sunday morning worship because they're angry at the church leaders for giving in to the government's demand. Government just didn't just demand it. The government came to cut down the church. The church leaders felt like it was the right thing to do because they were afraid that the government was going to destroy the church entirely. Well, the young people are boycotting Sunday morning worship. They're worshiping on Thursday night, the day of the week the cross was cut down. I can't imagine what it would be like to pastor that church when those emotions run so deep. In so many ways, friends, we have it easy here, and yet perhaps our own affluence as Americans and the freedoms that we have, maybe that presents even a greater challenge to us to seek first in our living the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So here are then the two questions as we leave. Can we, today, make a fresh determination to trust that God values us so much that it constrains him to take care of us by the exercise of his sovereign power, the power that he has to provide us the basic necessities our bodies need, food, shelter, clothing, and to give us a good life, by which I mean a rich and full life well lived. And if he determines that that is not our deepest need, but if it is his will that we go without things 
for some reason or other to his glory, can we trust? Just as it was true for Stephen, though he died a horrible death, God, in fact, valued him more than the birds because he promised Stephen an immortal existence beyond the power of decay and demise. But the second question is, can we make a fresh determination today to demonstrate that trust in God by making choices, little ones maybe, maybe big choices, to love God's kingdom and all that it stands for more than we love anyone or anything else? Loving his kingdom by looking for its fulfillment, by giving ourselves to its work, living out that righteous character and behavior that the kingdom calls us to, knowing that it is, in fact, the one hope for our broken and hurting world. We'll finish with this quote. It's from John Stott. In the end, there are only two kinds of ambition. One can be ambitious either for oneself or for God. In so many ways, that seems false to us, either or. God said you can't serve, Jesus said you can't serve God and you can't serve money. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other or vice versa. Why the choice? Isn't it either or? Does it have to be either or? John Stott is saying the same thing that in the end two parties cannot sit on the throne in the center one can be ambitious either for oneself or for God the great paradox of the gospel friends is that when we choose for God God himself knows how to give back to us